HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host and producer, Sherry Bayer, and it is Monday, February 19th, 2024, and this is our 380th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an award-winning TV personality, chef, writer, teacher, and social justice advocate who is involved in the upcoming South Beach Wine and Food Festival, otherwise known as SOBE WFF, and I will also be attending that later this week, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip, then later we'll have my speed round game, industry news, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to devour as much as we can wherever we go. And by this, I don't necessarily mean to lick every plate that's set in front of us, although we could, but rather to learn and absorb all there is to know about our surroundings and destinations. Let's do our research ahead of traveling and dining out, such as by reading about the chefs, restaurants, and attractions in advance, seeking info and checking out photos on social media, and talking to friends and locals who have experience or knowledge to share. The more we become immersed in our adventures, the more we get out of them. So let's remember to take it all in always. That's my tip today. Okay, so I'm super excited to have my guest joining me. It is Andrew Zimmern. He's an Emmy-winning and four-time James Beard Award-winning TV personality, chef, writer, teacher, and social justice advocate. As the creator, executive producer, and host of Travel Channel's Bizarre Foods franchise, Andrew Zimmern's Driven by Food, and Emmy-winning The Zimmern List, 
Andrew has devoted his life to exploring and promoting cultural acceptance, tolerance, and understanding through food. He will be participating in the upcoming Sobe Wine and Food Festival presented by Capital One, which is celebrating 23 years and taking place February 22nd to 25th in Miami, Florida, with a mission to eat, drink, and educate. Without further ado, hi, Andrew. Welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm thrilled to be chatting with you today. So thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. There's so much to talk about. We'll we'll get to the the Sobe Wine and Food Festival in a little bit, but I always like to start out with my guests and find out about how they got into this wonderful culinary industry that we're a part of. So do you want to take us back a little bit to what drew you to become a chef? I I never wanted to be anything else but in the food business and around food and I mean we've parent pictures of me as a little child, you know, obsessively cooking with my mother, gardening, fishing with my dad, throwing the fish on a grill, being held by my ankles while my father lowered me between big rocks out on Long Island and the jetties to pull up big ropes of mussels that we would clean and cook. Um, I loved restaurants. I loved food. I loved everything about it. I loved eating. I love the, the mostly the stories that my father told. Um, I'm just a paler version of him. When when I was six, seven, eight years old, we would travel and eat and eat and travel. Uh, both reflexive exercises in what our our pleasure seeking was. And my father just endlessly told stories. I, I think because he didn't know how to talk to a little kid. Um, I think he was doing the best he could, but it wound up having a profound effect on me, or maybe genetically I was the perfect listener, and uh, or maybe he just got it right. I, I you know, combination of the above. I, I don't judge it. Um, he was a wonderful man and a fabulous father, but like all parents, uh, you know, flummoxed by how to actually raise a child, you know, as a parent myself, I mean, we don't, we aren't born with instruction manuals. It's, it's a rather challenging job, but he was very, very story driven about everything that we were doing. And so every restaurant, every dish, every street, I mean, I just, I remember being with him at, I was eight or nine, my first trip to Florence and we ate at his favorite trattoria, still open today. I still go, Trattoria Sostanza, uh, near the old railway station. But it's, he spent an hour and a half telling me about how from the late 40s, when he first went to Florence, until that day in the late 60s, 20 years later, how much had changed in what was also the the, the leather goods neighborhood of that incredible city. Um, I mean, today there's still sort of like knockoff discount leather jacket and purse shops there, but it used to be the hub for leather trading and designing and, and, you know, home to a lot of the Italian companies that made quality leather goods. And I just will never forget it because my father said, every time you come here, try to buy something, you know, leather goods, right? We went to Wheeler's fish house in London uh, on a trip earlier. And I remember him telling me 
that around the corner was a department store called Marks and Spencer. And so never come to Wheeler's without stopping at Marks and Spencer first and loading up on socks because they made the best socks he felt in the world. Um, it was, you know, we, we, there was a, a restaurant in Rome that he was very fond of that we went to, uh, and it was around the corner from Brioni. And he said, don't ever come here without shopping at Brioni. I mean, everything was linked to something else that he did. And they were just marvelous stories. And um, I, I, I've never wanted to do anything else but be in the food business. And I've never wanted to do anything else but tell stories about food. Because I think food is the, is the ideal uh, microscope, magnifying glass, telescope, sometimes kaleidoscope with which to describe culture and people and what's going on in our world. 100%, and you brought back some memories for me. I actually did a semester in Florence in college. So next time I'm back, I'm gonna check out that restaurant. Just taking notes. Uh, it's, it's quite something. My, my father went there with my, he went there on his own, first trip to Florence. Then he went with my mother in the 50s on their honeymoon. Um, then a couple more times on business, then with me three or four times when we went to Florence, um, and we just watched the staff age, uh, my father, that they knew him, uh, it wasn't super popular with Americans. You know, there was, there was only, I think one guidebook, you know, I mean, maybe photos put out one in the sixties. I mean, it just, my dad was a real singular character. And, and I remember my first visit, he, I, I wasn't given a choice on what to order uh, because my father said there's four or five things they do here better than everyone else. And, and he made sure we ordered those on the first visit. And um, it was all family, uh, large tables, a couple uh, deuces against the wall, but there were these two big, farm tables in the middle of the restaurant and we were sitting next to people in a very elegant black tie they were going to the opera and i remember thinking to myself restaurants are the best i mean where else do you know schmucks like us american tourists get to rub up against the elite of italian society and you know i still believe that today i mean what if you were sitting in a little yeah, I mean, I mean, little, you know, restaurant in, uh, I think it was Ho Chi Minh City, uh, having a bowl of soup and in walked uh, Barack Obama and Tony Bourdain to record something uh, for uh, Parts Unknown. I mean, you would, I mean. Yeah, you would, yeah. And it's things like that have happened. That's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly right. So I know, I know. It's, it's incredible. It, it to me, it was, you know, there's nothing I wanted to do other than be a part of food. Yeah. So how how did you go from being a chef in a restaurant or restaurants to becoming a TV personality? And I mean, you're talking about storytelling and something you always wanted to do. But when you started cooking, did you think one day you would be on TV telling stories and talking as a chef or when you first started out, was it more, well, I'm just going to be, you know, making the the steak and, you know, pleasing people with my food. Well, it's, it's, it's evolutionary. I mean, the, the, you, you don't know what's available until it becomes available. 
so it, it really sort of matches the sort of the history of, of food in America in a sense. Um, I went to college. I graduated with two degrees in history and art history because I kept getting kicked out. I think three or four semesters I was asked to take a break. Um, and, and so I was on the whatever, the six-year plan. Whenever I took a break, I would, I would go away to Europe or Asia and cook um, in really good restaurants. Um, I cooked with Alain Senderin in L'Arcastrade in Paris when he had three stars. You know, I, I cooked in, in Hong Kong at the peninsula and learned about Chinese cookery, which today continues to be the, the, one of the great joys of my life in terms of just being able to focus and cook. Um, I, I cooked in Venice at Alla Colomba and Taverna della Fenice, uh, next to the Fenice Opera House. Uh, I was in Venice for nine months, so it was a longer uh, stay. And I wanted to have a different experience than at Alla Colomba which was great, but I, it turned out I was really good at cooking risotto. And so they stuck me on the risotto section. And for young cooks, if anyone is listening to this, if you're really good at Sunday brunch eggs or risotto, they never give you enough burners to cook risotto properly in a restaurant. And so if you can pull it off on the two burners that you're given, uh, while there may be five or six different types of risotto on the menu, uh, if you're really good at it, you're going to be stuck there forever. So that's when you know it's time to leave. Um, but, you know, I, it, at those points, I just want to become the best cook that I could be. Um, came back to America and realized that I had some leadership qualities and organizational qualities that allowed me to rise up the ranks, become a sous chef in good restaurants in New York City, become a chef in restaurants. Um, but at the same time, I drugged and drank myself out of an existence, not just a, a, one of the food business, but in, in my own. Um, and, you know, in January, 1992, I stole a bunch of jewelry from my godmother, stole some barbiturates, bought some vodka, went into a hotel room, swallowed enough barbiturates to kill an elephant and drank a bottle of vodka. And, uh, somehow woke up two days later and I wasn't dead, which had been the intention and uh, reached out and called a friend and asked for help. Something I'd never done before in anything, never asked anyone for help, thought I knew everything. I was a horrible person. I mean, just a user of people and a taker of things. I'm sure I had my moments, uh, but just, I was a worthless individual. And um, fascinatingly, uh, moved to, you know, Minnesota to go to treatment. Well, I didn't move. I was, I was given a one-way ticket and I had the ability to go to, uh, treatment at Hazelden had been set up by friends, got sober, stayed sober. What is, what was fascinating to me was that was 32 years ago. When I got out, I knew I could wash dishes in a restaurant. I knew how restaurants work. I was supposed to get a job nine to five, be back at the halfway house after I got out of primary treatment. So I did. And um, that dishwashing job, you know, I wanted a better dishwashing job. And um, about a month after I had started living this halfway house with my first dishwashing job, some friends of mine, uh, they did not know I was in Minneapolis. Um, 
some friends of mine opened an outpost of their New York City restaurant in Minneapolis. There were no French bistros in Minneapolis. And so George and Gerard from Café en Trois in the theater district decided to open one in Minneapolis downtown in this historic building with soaring columns and painted frescoes. And it was really a smart move on their part. Um, they didn't understand the Minneapolis market. They, you know, people were, you know, they guests here didn't appreciate, you know, hosts, you know, wandering the, the halls of the restaurant, screaming and swearing at guests or any other sort of New York restauranting vernacular that tends to exist in some places. And the local partner, uh, uh, the operating partner bought them out and uh, he was struggling to run the restaurant. It was about three or four months old. And I was washing dishes, getting ready to go back to New York. And someone didn't show up for work that day on the line. And it was the dishwasher. I watched the food, but, you know, it was French bistro food. I, I, I literally could cook it in my sleep. And I, I don't say this with a lot of ego. I just say it factually that none of them really could cook very well. They had a stressed out chef who had been uh, actually a, a, a line cook at the late uh, David Boulay's restaurant. Um, uh, as the chef there. Industry news today. David yeah. Um, really, really awful stuff. And um, so, you know, and he wasn't that great. Um, and so, you know, I went to the chef and I said, look, I can replace that guy. He said, you're the dishwasher, go back to the pit and was pretty dismissive. And so I was at that point, I was determined that, that this guy was in my, in my radar sites. Um, so at around 11 o'clock, we opened at 1130. He, um, he still didn't have anyone. And we would do 240 covers at lunch in a 110 seat restaurant in an hour and a half. It was insanity. Um, and uh, it was the hottest restaurant in town by far uh, when it opened and just packed every day for lunch. It was surrounded by all the biggest companies in Minneapolis, quite, quite a few. And um, I, he wound up, I, I just convinced him. I said, you're, you're short-sighted. You're, you're, screwing yourself over. I mean, just, I, I wouldn't tell you I could put out the food if I couldn't put out the food. And so I went and I did, and they had some expediting trouble. So I, you know, helped out with that. And at the end of the lunch shift, I went back to washing dishes and the, the, I think the chef was a little embarrassed uh, because clearly I was helping out too many people doing too many things. And so clearly he, he knew it's like cooking is like sports. The minute you cook with someone, you know where you stand vis-a-vis -vis their talent set, especially in a restaurant where there's a lot of different dishes going on. And um, the owner of the restaurant called me to his office and he said, do you want to explain to me why my dishwasher is the best cook in my restaurant, including my chef? And um, I, I told him, my story and he offered me the chef's job and I said, I can't, I'm living in a halfway house. I have to be home at five o'clock every day. And he said, when do you get out? And I told him and he said, great, tell me two weeks beforehand. So I told him two weeks beforehand and I wound up taking over the restaurant and we sort of became the best restaurant in town, according to critics and, 
Amazing. It was a great, great experience. And, and I tried to bring some of my storytelling to the menu because once I became the chef, two wonderful things happened. So many people in our industry were coming to the Twin Cities for treatment. I had chefs and sous chefs from New York, LA, Florida, Chicago, all you know, being sent to treatment and then to the halfway house. I put up signs in all the halfway houses that says, if you have more than six years experience cooking in uh, a, uh, a restaurant that takes their food seriously, give us a call. And we would have 12 step meetings in the back of the dining room in between lunch and dinner. And I put together an incredible crew of people who didn't want to be around drugs and alcohol. And for about three, four years, we were, I mean, just crushing it. It was fantastic. Maybe one of the best team, truly team feelings of my life. And, uh, but at that time, Food Network just, sort of burst onto the scene and and food TV became different. It was no longer the galloping gourmet and Jock and Julia. It was a lot of other types of television. And uh, I was going on local TV here, uh, morning shows, the typical thing that's always happened. Uh, but everybody kept telling me, wow, you're, you're good at this. You should, you know, you're good at this. So I started auditioning for some local shows, HGTV shows that were being shot here um, and wound up becoming the, the house chef on two early shows, one syndicated called Rebecca's Garden, the other one, one of the year one HGTV shows called Typical Mary Ellen. Um, and I just cooked a lot on TV and, and I, I realized that while I was telling stories with my food, you know, I was we would have a, we would do a second night of Seder at my restaurant. I'd cook my grandmother's food. I had traveled to Vietnam. We would do a Wednesday night where we did uh, French Vietnamese food uh, because we were a French bistro. So we sort of had to tie it into uh, that French colonial experience in Vietnam, cooking mostly the food of Hue, which is probably the city in, in Vietnam that is, is still the most French in a sense. And I just needed a bigger platform for my stories. And I realized I should just quit. And so I quit. And I went into a radio station, a TV station, and a uh, magazine and said, I'll do a three-month internship. Don't pay me. I just want to learn your business. Um, and after three months, I had sort of made myself indispensable. And locally push some other people out of the way. And then I just kept making tape and pushing ideas in front of people about stories and pitched what became Bizarre Foods to Travel Channel. And they wanted a sizzle and then they wanted another sizzle and then they wanted a pilot. And then they wanted two pilots because I had two ideas that I sent them. They liked them both. And the, the one that was called uh, Bizarre Foods of Asia uh, wound up just by a small fraction beating out a show called uh world's best ballpark foods um and bizarre foods aired in i think we shot it in 2005 and 6 it aired in 2007 um episode one did okay episode two did okay the network was like, well, episode three needs to do better than episodes one or two. Uh, for anyone who isn't in the television business, episode three is where all 
uh, television goes to live or die. Um, if you're doing a show like True Detective and you have, you know, eight episodes uh, and they're all going to air on HBO, that's not necessarily the case. Episode three doesn't have to be the hook show. But in all other types of TV, pretty much, episode three is the hook show. It's the one, you know, they want to give a show a couple of a couple of weeks for promotion and marketing, by the way, of which we had none, uh, help to f- allow an audience to find a show. So episode three is usually where you stash your best show. And uh, we put our Ecuador show there, and uh, it aired Monday night. Uh, I was the show right after Bourdain's, um, and he was in his second season. I was in my first. Pat Young, the, the head of Travel Channel, was trying to build a Monday night with sort of immersive explorers around food, and uh, it didn't do a very good number. Uh, but I got a call that Wednesday uh, from the Tonight Show saying that their bookers had seen this show. And there was a shaman who did, performed an exorcism on me that was really quite hysterical. And uh, I was naked. He spat on me. He poured, you know, 151 on me and lit me on fire. Uh he beat animals against my chest until they were dead to absorb the evil spirits. It was a whole two-hour process. You just um, described this as hysterical. <laughs> like this sounds. It was. It was pretty funny, and um, <laughs> so they asked me if I could fly out to LA and be on the show Thursday. I couldn't. We had a little baby. I I was on dad duty. I mean, there was just I couldn't. And they said, "Okay, how about Friday?" And I said, "Sure." So Friday. Uh, night uh i went on the tonight show uh i guess that would probably be fall of 2007 uh for my first time with jay and um it went great and obviously the next week the show exploded in the ratings and i guess the rest is is kind of history um it, it was really all in pursuit of telling better stories that's the, to a bigger audience you know, I mean, that's really what I've always wanted to do. It's what I still try to do. I want to tell better stories to a bigger audience. Well, your story is incredible. It's so inspirational. I mean, there's so many things in there. I feel like I could have commented on or related to. I mean, I, I quit drinking 21 years ago. My life got better after I quit. So um, it's usually how it works. Congratulations. Thank you. You know, my life kind of unfolded uh, based around my love and passion for chefs in the industry, not really knowing where I was going to go, but um, definitely quitting drinking led me to now being able to have my own business and you know, have my own podcast and do all this. So yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting thing though. You know, the, you know, I tell a lot of young men and some young women that I work with, um, you know, you, the, the thing about when I say work with, I mean, mentor in 12 step groups and in sobriety the, you know, when you're, when you're aware of what's going on and you uh, walk slowly, I I don't walk like I'm on ice or on eggshells. Um, I'm a very aggressive person, but I've slowed down enough to be aware of what's going on. And when you're aware of what's going on, which I wasn't when I was drinking and using, you are 
you are sensitive to the vibes that the universe is throwing out. And that, I mean, that's trend, right? I mean, so the choices that I've made in my life, everyone says, oh, what? some people say, oh, that was smart. Some people say, oh, that was lucky. It was, it was actually neither. Um, I just had put myself in a position to be aware of things. So when they happened, I was like, oh, I'll raise my hand. I mean, it, it really, I, I'm, I was no one special. Um, I just was uh, aware uh, and was in, you know, in a place in my life that I would argue I worked hard to put myself in, but also was very lucky to be in at the same time. I think both can be true. Um, and I was, I was not scared. Um, for some people, that's faith. Uh, you know, it's, you know, I, I think faith is patience. I think, you know, obviously it's, a, it, you know, faith is a lack of fear. And I think when you're, when you're patient and fearless, really incredible things can happen. And, uh, no matter what you do in your life and you can, and you can manufacture that many, 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 many different ways. Uh, some people have it naturally. I did not. So I had to manufacture faith and fearlessness. And uh, I, I put myself in a position to do some really wonderful things. Yes, yes, yes. And congratulations on everything you've accomplished. It's really incredible. And I was thinking I've, I've been living by Columbus Circle in New York City for over 15 years, but I have a memory of, of flyers being handed out in Columbus Circle that you had some street marketing campaign go on with Bizarre Foods. I don't know what year it was, but I always think of that. So yeah. The real ugly truth is that good shows need marketing dollars in years one and two. Uh, that was year three. Uh, so it would have been around 2010. They were like, oh, it's such a big hit and people love it. Let's put some marketing dollars behind it. And I just, I mean- Oh my God, how stupid. I mean, the show had already found its audience. I don't think any of that marketing made a bigger or better number for the show. Maybe not one been. more. No, but, I don't you know. know. I just remember that though. It's a it's a crazy <laughs> kind of it's a crazy kind of thing. As someone who produces television now and and a lot of it for other people and owns a production company, I'm like, you know, hey, you know, network people, if you believe in a show throw some money at it. It, it is, it is, I know that, you know, money doesn't grow in trees. All networks are pleading po poverty, but already established shows seldom, seldom need it. What they're trying to do is build big franchises and they, they're so focused on that. They forget networks do that. The biggest hits they've ever had are the result of the biggest risks they've ever taken. And it's true of linear TV, cable, digital, you know, scripted, unscripted, it does not matter. Um, and so, you know, I, I wish that they would take bigger swings and then invest in them if they believe in them. Yeah, I hear you. Okay, let me ask you my question for my last two guests who were on episode 379. I had on two chefs. Matt Nesmesning and Marco Prinz. They're the newly appointed executive chefs at the world-renowned restaurant Chef's Table at Brooklyn Fair. They want to know, how do you spend a day of your life from waking up to going to bed? I imagine every day is a little different, but... <laughs> wow. Um, 
well, let's see. I'm 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 trying to sort of think of the average uh, day. Um, I get up in the morning and uh, I have a morning routine that I go through that kind of gets me started for the day. Um, uh, wash up, come downstairs, uh, have some coffee or tea. It depends on how I'm feeling. Um, I've, I've started to drink less coffee and more tea uh, over the last couple of years, just based on, I mean, tea has more caffeine than coffee, but tea sort of puts the caffeine into my system a different way. So I, you know, big shout out for tea. Um, so I, I, I do my tea. I check my phone. I check my email, um, uh, say goodbye to the dogs and go off to the office. Um, and I, I work on a lot of my businesses rather than in my businesses. I have a small marketing company uh, that also handles all of my own personal deals. I have a hospitality company uh, called Passport Hospitality, and uh, I also own Intuitive Content, which I'm very proud to say I think is four years in a row, a real screen, uh, International 100. Um, lists are great when you're on them. Lists are wrong and terrible and suck and stupid when you're not on them. So uh, love being on that real screen 100 list. It's a, it's really great for a, a medium-sized company in the Midwest, uh, medium-sized production company in the Midwest to, to have that kind of blessing uh, from the poobahs on the coast. Um, and uh, so I spend a lot of time during that day, probably more than my board would like on my uh, nonprofit and service work. Um, I, I, I increasingly have found uh, the joys of service work that I learned sobering up the first 15 years of my life, um, of my sober life, you know, service was the key to me getting well. I couldn't think of my own problems when I was helping someone else. And um, all of my sobriety is, is predicated on, on service work. Um, and, you know, my spiritual guides asked me why I only limited that to helping other drunks. And I, I thought that was really profound. Um, I really didn't know you could help people other than drunks. Um, and so I became very civically minded. I started becoming much more involved in social justice issues and was asked to be on a bunch of boards and do a lot of things at, at a pretty high level. And, you know, if for people who are interested in what I do, go to andrewzimmern.com. Everything is there. So you can sign up for my sub stack. You can look at recipes, you can see links to my YouTube channel where you can subscribe. You know, none of these are paywalled. Uh, Substack does have a tiered system, obviously. And, and I would hope, shameless plug, that you do that. Um, it, but in the upper right corner is a little button that says philanthropy on it. And there's the, the list of places where I like to play. And I actually spend the majority of my day doing that. Uh, whether it's with the United Nations World Food Program or the Charlize Theron Africa Outreach Project or services for the underserved uh, in New York or the Environmental Working Group or Nature Conservancy, um, Explore Media, all the different places that's hosting the National STEM Challenge, April 12th in Washington, D.C., uh, which we created the largest STEM 
uh, event of any kind in history is one that we've created as part of Explorer Media, which is aiming to educate kids over this medium and others. Um, so I spend a lot of my time working on that kind of stuff. Uh, and then I come home and cook uh, because the only way that I can get rid of my day and all the crazy thoughts that pop into my head is by doing something like cooking where I, I can't think of, you know, any of my problems when I'm making homemade pasta, you just can't, I mean, you're, you're, you know, someone once told me at one of these sort of like executive retreats where everybody is, you know, handing out, you know, copies of a Simon Sinek book or something that the best thing to do is to play catch in the middle of the day when you're stressed because you can't think of your own problems if somebody is throwing a ball at your face. Um, so it's just your brain can't do both at the same time. You can't be worried about a phone call. You have to make it three o'clock. It's going to be uncomfortable if you're playing catch. Um, for me, it's cooking. It's my yoga. It's what makes me feel good. Um, I'll usually do a 12-step meeting, watch some sports, go to bed. Um, you know, read, read before bed. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, it's a very typical boring lifestyle. Now, <laughs> I, I don't know about that. <laughs> that average day, that average day, um, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, only happens about 90 days a year. Um, but that's kind of, that's what, that's what I do when I'm home. I'm, I'm in my home right now. Um, and then, then I'm away to, to then I'm say, away then the days where let's say, let's tie in a little into South Beach Wine and Food Festival coming up that you are very involved in that you're you're out and about being very social and hosting and do you want to talk yeah, a little about I mean, that? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I've, I've had a pretty evolved uh, career. So, you know, when I'm traveling for work and I'm at events or, you know, performing duties or attending awards or whatever, I'm asked to do a lot of stuff. And I say, yes, um, because it's an opportunity for me to carry a message of some kind. Um, that's my platform. My platform, you know, is built when I'm alone, but it's expressed when I'm in front of people. And so I get a chance to show up and someone can say, wow, that guy's got his shit together. And then someone else can say, yeah, well, at one point, you know, he tried to kill himself and he was living homeless. Well, I wasn't homeless. I lived in an abandoned building. I think there's a difference. I mean, I had wind blowing through the windows, but at least snow wasn't falling on me. Um, a lot of homeless people have to deal with more horrific conditions than I dealt with. Um, but, you know, I, I like standing up there and, and knowing that someone out there is telling so that to someone else and maybe it helps them. Um, and yeah, I get to do a lot of cool things. I mean, I'm uh, hosting the closing party, uh, the block party on uh, Sunday in South Beach. I'm cooking on Saturday with uh, Diego Oka at Lamar in the uh, peninsula, one of my favorite restaurants and one of my favorite chefs uh, in the country, not just in Miami. Um, you know, I'll go to a bunch of parties. I'll hang out with friends in the culinary world. It's, you know, it's great to see all of them. Um, and, and I'm, I'm super blessed. I've, I have a, I have a, a wonderful life, um, a beautiful son, and uh, I'm very, very, very lucky man.
It's amazing. I know we're short time, but I have two things I want to do before I let you go. One is we're going to play the quickest speed round ever. And then second, I'm going to ask you to ask a question for my next guest. Um, sure. So first, here we go. My speed round. What this is, is I'm going to name a couple things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. You ready? Yep. Okay. Eat in at home or eat out at a restaurant? Eat in. Indoor dining or alfresco dining? Alfresco. Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Uh, mocktail. No one still likes the word mocktail, I know. I hate it. <laughs> It rhymes with cocktail for my game, but hey. I know. Um, <laughs> okay. Tasting menu or a la carte? Uh, well, the, the true answer is I do both. I make my own meal and chefs send things out to me. So it's a, it's a hybridized thing. I'm very lucky. Very cool. How about small plates or large plates? Um, small plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Communal table. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? That can be a whole show, I know. I am, I am vibrantly against our current pay structure system uh, for restaurant employees in America. I'm horrified that the laws are different state to state. I very much believe in a national system that takes care of that. I think service charges are a better option than others, but I think the best option of all would be for restaurants to economically level set. I spend a lot of time doing this, so you're not going to get a short answer. They need to economically level set by bringing food in at a price they can afford and then charging more for it on a plate in front of the customer sufficient to keep their business afloat. And that is a very complex uh, calculus and restaurants do not do a good job of it in general. And they try to make it up at the bar. How many times have you heard that? We're going to, we're going to make it up with alcohol sales. No, you have to make sure all phases of your business are operating sufficiently so that you can take care of your employees and put profit into the bank. So it is, um, it's an issue I believe in very strongly. I don't think there's an either or, but uh, service charges are better than tips in general, but they are proving to be very problematic from a, from a public perception standpoint. I hear you. Okay, a few more. Open kitchen or closed kitchen? Open. Second line New Orleans style or karaoke? Karaoke. Cool. I did do a second line a bit with you back um, October 2020 with Alan Shia. Remember that event? Well, That's I did. Yeah. Um, okay. Two last two are cheese plate or dessert. Or dessert. Um, I always do both. <laughs> As you should. And uh, Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Minneapolis, which is still on my list to get to. Uh, Queens. 
Queens. I love it. Queens, New York, uh, one of Manhattan's five boroughs, uh, if it was a city, would be the most vibrant and exciting food city in the world. Fantastic. And anybody who wants to debate that with me, come at me. Good luck. Okay, I know you got to go, but I need a final question from you for my next guest. So while I'm down in Miami and I look forward to seeing you down there, I'm going to be interviewing Valerie Chankumpa, an award-winning Miami-based chef who, along with her family, opened Itame in the Miami Design District, focusing on Nikia cuisine. saying that wrong. Nikkei. Uh, Nikkei cuisine. Peruvian-Japanese fusion. Yes, and I love Itame has been one of my favorite restaurants in Miami for a while. She also has the B-Side at the popular Asian food hall, 1-800-LUCKY. And her latest restaurant opening is Maddie's in Miami's Midtown neighborhood. And I'm going to be going to dinner there. I went, um, Miami's my hometown, so I went over Thanksgiving. Uh, but I'm going to go on Saturday night. When you're doing your dinner, I'm going to go to her dinner that she's doing with Chabela Koss and Anna Castro. Um, I guess it's ladies' night at Maddie's. So I'm looking forward to that. But, Andrew, can you please ask a question for what, Valerie? What, my dinner with Diego wasn't good enough? I'm, I I'm, wish I'm I could do, I wish I could do both. Yeah, I wish right. I could I mean, do both. Is- I, I got this invited is, to this one though. <laughs> this is the problem. This is the problem of South Beach. There's so many the the, the the parties on the grand tasting tents amazing. The parties on the beach are amazing. The big events, Burger Bash, et cetera, amazing. But what started as a single dinner um, has become 200 dinners over the course of three days across the city, where chefs from out of town like me go to a restaurant uh, and cook with a local chef and people buy tickets for it and the proceeds go to charity. Um, It's my favorite thing about South Beach and New York City Wine and Food Festival, both run by the same organizer, the brilliant Lee Schrager. Um, uh, I would ask her um, what the biggest challenge is. Well, no, I would like her to describe the the twin challenges of uh, coming up in this business as a uh, a woman and a chef and restaurant owner and the hurdles and the work that she had to do to establish herself at the same time cooking in a style that is not familiar to most Americans. Um, I, I went on a rant on my Substack. I do this thing on Fridays, a video, Ask Me Anything. And I am so fucking angry about this best female chef crap. It is, I, I didn't know I would so viscerally uh, be, become so upset. Um, and, and why this year? And I maybe it's just time. Maybe Maybe I only... It was like Jenga. I, a piece came and I I fell down. But I've always, every time World's 50 Best or, you know, some of that other stuff comes out, there's like Best Female Chef. You know, and they announced the World's 50 Best Asia Awards about three weeks ago. And uh, Chef Pam from, I, I, I believe it's Potong in Bangkok, uh, was awarded the um, the Best female chef in Asia. Um, and I just went bonkers because what, why can't we just have everyone in the same pile? 
this this chef uh, who won this award is as good as any chef in Asia. Full stop. Full stop. It's 2024. Why can't we just, you know, if, if we really want to, I mean, somewhere someone said, well, if we have a separate award for women, it will elevate their profile. No, it doesn't. It segregates them into another, into another other than. It's, it's another way of othering. You know, I, and I think the male dominated organizations and short thinking people um, are afraid of what will happen because, I mean, and, and, and they shouldn't be. But I think somehow they think it's going to upset the old boys club because women have always been better cooks than men. I mean, always. And uh, I think a lot of men have trained themselves up. There are a lot of great chefs out there who are men. I think it should just be chefs. If we really want to equalize our systems here, it needs to be 100% inclusive. And it may stumble out of the gate for a couple of years, but you have to stay focused and determined. I can name 20 female chefs whose restaurants I'd rather eat in all across the world, uh, you know, first and foremost, you know, in, in almost every country. And I, I think this idea that we somehow have to put them in a separate category is so limiting and so insulting. So I love asking chefs, especially ones who are cooking a cuisine that's very personal to them to tell us about that story. I hear you loud and clear. And I, I want to send you a copy of my book, my chef wise book, which has, has many wonderful over a hundred chefs around the world, but a lot of female chefs and Elena Regattas is in my book and Carolina Bazan is in my book. And they've received that award that you're talking about. I've been going to the world's 50 best and interviewing, meeting chefs. And I agree, like, why is there a best female chef award? Why do we need that? I think the chefs I've spoken to accepted and the idea of being proud of it and being like, we can have a platform then to be able to, you know, to voice and be more heard in the industry. And change the system. But you, so, can't, you can't tell me that there's a man on planet Earth who can cook better than, better than Dominique Crenn or Elena Arzak or uh, Annie Peak or any of the edible female chefs. And, and so I think it's time to do away with that system and elevate all chefs into one pile so that 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 young cooks who are female can say you know something there is no othering there is no special category i'm i don't need to be put off in a the the implication of best female chef is that it's slightly lesser we're not going to include you in best chef cuz it doesn't say best male chef I'm not, I'm not arguing I'm just, with you at all. No, no, I'm just, not. In, I, I know you're my, not. I, I feel, as a female I too, I, I don't feel any different than your listeners. My your male listeners are arguing with me in their heads. And I would point out that the deciding factor for me is that it doesn't say best male chef, right? It just says best chef. And so I think it's in, just on, on its face is so insulting. Is there a better chef out there than Ashley Christensen? I just, I, I just don't understand. What is the fear? Why? 
Why, 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 why? I do not get it. It makes no sense to me at all. So there. You, I'm just going to rant forever. You should what's just pull your, the plug on me. What's your top advice for aspiring young cooks? You know, this book I have, I'm very proud of, you know, it's chef's advice. And so I want to know you as a leading uh, chef, what's your advice? I think the most important words in the English language, and, and we teach it in kitchens, and it's very rarely taught elsewhere, but still a lot of people are afraid of it. Asking for help is a sign of strength, not of weakness, period. I love that. So the most important words in the English language are, I don't know how to do that. Can you help me? And, or can you show me? Or can you explain that? Right? That's why a good chef sits there with a young cook and says, here you go. You're going to make 50 uh, seafood on papillote and throw them in the walk-in so that we can cook them off. It's tonight's special. Let me show you how I want this. And you show them the first two or three and then let them have at it, period. And you check on them 20 minutes later and say, how's it going? And it's an exchange. It's it's a way of teaching and sharing. And that's what we do in kitchens. And I think more people need to be reminded that asking for help is how we learn everything. I try to stay teachable every single day of my life. I'm constantly asking how do you do that? How can you show me that? Can you help me with that? I just did it yesterday. I spent two hours in computers. I have no idea how to deal with tech stuff. And I called a friend of mine, one of my goddaughter's husband. And I said, would you meet me there and help me with this? And he was more than happy to. He said, sure. I think people are afraid that someone's going to say no. But I think human beings are wired uh, to want to help other people. Yeah, well... You're incredible. Um, congratulations on everything you've accomplished. And I, I know there's more and I wish we had more time to dive into all of your businesses and, and just keep chatting. Um, but I, I appreciate you so much. And um, I'm going to let you get on it with your day unless you want to keep chatting. But I feel like you have, I have to go. To I'm, I'm, I'm running late <laughs> already. I, yeah. I, I, well, I'm actually going I gave away a lunch with Andrew at a, a to at a charity, and some people flew into Minneapolis to have lunch with me. So nice. I need to drive and go meet them. Well, I'm going to let you do that. To listeners, I'm going to take a little break and come back, and I'm going to share a little industry news and share my solo dining experience and and leave you with all the closing notes of how you can find Andrew and how I usually wrap up shows. AndrewZimmerman.com. There you go, and on social. At Chef AZ, right? <laughs> On Instagram, but just go to andrewzimmerman.com. It has everything is right there. Super easy. We put everything in one place. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you in sunny Florida, warming up. Weekend. I think you got some snow happening behind you. So Lots of it. <laughs> All right. We'll All stay warm. There. And thank, thank you, you so much. All right, stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. 
Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheese-making traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host and producer, Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Andrew Zimmerman, an Emmy-winning and four-time James Beard Award-winning TV personality, chef, writer, and social justice advocate. I just said goodbye to Andrew because he had to get on with his busy day, but I am back to share some news with you and also my solo dining experience. So for industry news... I alluded to it earlier about David Boulay, and it's actually very sad news. He has passed away. There's an article in the New York Times that came out last week entitled David Boulay, Influential New York Chef Dies at 70. At restaurants like Montrachet and Boulay, he channeled French Nouvelle Cuisine to create the new American style. This was by Julia Moskin. He died on Monday in his home in Kent, Connecticut, and it was from cardiac arrest. I didn't know David super well, but I had met him over the years, and I had dined at many of his restaurants, which were mostly in Tribeca. I celebrated my birthday in 2014 at his restaurant, Boulay Solo. I found a photo collage that I posted from that. I had written amazing tasting menu, lovely ambiance and service, perfect place to celebrate. I remember their incredible bread cart and all the apples on the wall when you walk in. I also had an incredible meal at Boulay at home in 2018. And I wrote exquisite home cooking. Um, he also had Brushstroke and Boulay Upstairs and Boulay Bakery and the Boulay Botanical, which I had also visited over the years. Pete Wells wrote he was a prolific pioneer in a piece in the New York Times, and the industry has been writing wonderful tributes to him and and sharing memories on social media, which I've been following. And I just want to express my sincerest condolences to his family, to his friends, to chefs and people in the industry who have worked with him. He was an influential chef and legend in our industry. It is extremely sad news. And again, I just want to express my condolences and say thank you for my memories and the wonderful experiences that I had at your restaurants and meeting you and rest in peace. Hi again. I just returned from the funeral service for David Boulay and felt I wanted to share with you about it. So it took place at St. Ignatius Loyola a beautiful church on New York City's Upper East Side, and it was a really lovely ceremony. 
The church was full, I'd say a few hundred people. And at one point they asked anyone who had worked with David Boulay to stand up and about half the room stood up, which was amazing. And there was a lovely reception after. And when you walked into the church, they had apples in little barrels with beautiful aroma because that's a signature of David Boulay. And I just thought I would read a little bit from the pamphlet that they passed out. So here it says, we remember Chef David Boulay, a visionary who has been transforming the culinary landscape since 1985 by marrying the art of fine dining with the science of well-being. Through his pioneering approach, he showed us that food is not just a source of nourishment, but a medium for healing, bringing together taste and health in harmony that not only delighted and inspired, but was curative and restorative as well. Chef David Boulay's legacy lives on not just in the dishes he created, but in the hearts he touched. In his cooking, he demonstrated love for the exceptionally high quality ingredients and innovative techniques that created simple yet complex flavors. Through his cooking, he demonstrated love for everyone fortunate enough to sit at his table. His extraordinary passion, imaginative creativity, and unfaltering dedication to excellence have left an indelible mark on all who had the pleasure of experiencing his culinary masterpieces. We honor his memory and celebrate his life, a life that has made a life-altering and an enduring impact on many. And it ends saying, David Boulay's family and friends wish you herbal blessings. So I'm so glad I was able to attend this. It brought together a wonderful community of chefs, as I said, many who have worked with him in the past. And the ceremony had some beautiful speeches, including Danny Wegman, who gave words of remembrance. And we got to hear a song from Lyle Lovett which was really nice. And at the reception, Danielle Baloud, Dan Barber, and David Boulay's wife, Nicole, all gave beautiful speeches. So it was very special. My sincere condolences again. I will savor my memories and thank you. Okay, so it's time for my solo dining experience. So this week is at Coco Dock. Here's the rundown. The location, 12 East 22nd Street, New York City in the Flatiron District. The concept, new fried chicken. On their Instagram page, it says, better fried chicken, largest champagne list in America. The owner, Simon Kim of Gracious Hospitality Management, who also is the founder of the super popular Coat Korean Steakhouse with locations in New York City, Miami, and Singapore. And Coat is the first and only Michelin-starred Korean steakhouse. The chef is SK Kim. The sommelier and director of beverage and partner is Victoria James. So why'd I go? Well, it's a hot new restaurant in New York City, and I definitely love me some good fried chicken. So my experience. Okay, so this place, as I said, is hot which means it's kind of impossible to get a reservation right now. So what did I do? Well, I went as a walk-in. I was down in the neighborhood last Friday. I was doing work at a nearby coffee shop. And I said, you know, why don't I put the laptop down at 4.30, walk over there. They open at five and see if I can get in in the first seating. 
And that is what I did. When I showed up, there was about eight people waiting in front of me already. 10 minutes later, there must have been about 20 people behind me. They opened their doors at 4.50 because they were ready early, which was nice. They let us in. And first thing you see when you enter is a hand washing station, which is a new signature thing of this restaurant. And I think it's pretty cool. So I washed my hands and then I was seated at the large bar, which filled up pretty fast. The whole place, I think, was full by 530, um, but going early definitely was the way to go because I got a seat. I had a really lovely time. There was a solo gentleman next to me who I chatted with a bit. There was a couple on the other side of me. And I also had a celebrity sighting. I'm not going to tell you who, except their initials are NPH. So glad I went. So what did I get? Well, I got the golden nugget with golden Darenki caviar. Uh, you can also get the golden nugget with ocean trout roe, but I splurged and went for the caviar. I also got the bucket list, which is chef's signature fried chicken feast. It comes with roasted chicken consomme to start, a bucket of chicken, and you get the Coca Doc original, and then you could pick another sauce. And I did the gochujang. I also went to try the soy sauce garlic glaze. So I ordered an extra piece. I got an extra thigh piece. You could do a la carte. Um, but the bucket list was really great. It was a very good value. So it also came with banchan and four dipping sauces and cold perilla seed noodles at the end. And the finale was a soft serve yogurt. And so that was all in the bucket list. My take, all delicious. The golden nugget is a splurge or was a splurge, but if you enjoy caviar, like I do, I'd say it was worth it. And the bucket list, as I mentioned, was a really great deal. I had leftover chicken. It was more chicken than I can eat, but it was such a good way to get a real taste for everything that they're doing there. Um, the consomme was super flavorful. All the chicken was great, uh, really tasty, delicious, perfectly cooked. And I was, you know, eating with my hands, finger looking good, I guess you'd say. And to end with the soft serve really hit the spot. So the ambiance. So it's like a dark, kind of sexy rectangular space. It has a long bar on the one side. And then over the main dining room are booths with a kind of like a runway going down the middle. And then over the top, it has these like arching lights. Um, it's, it's very stylish. It was designed by David Rockwell. And as mentioned, that Simon put in this hand-washing station right up front. It will be interesting to see if other restaurants start copying this idea where you walk in and there are sinks, you wash your hands. You got some nice soaps, some, some great mirrors. So I think it's cool. I'd say it's perfect for a solo dining at the bar or a feast with friends. Interesting tidbit. So the name Coca Doc is a combination of the French word Coke, C-O-Q, which means chicken, and the Korean word Doc, D-A-Q, which also means chicken. And another interesting tidbit, the space was formerly Almond Restaurant, but prior to that, it was Rocco de Spirito's Rocco's on 22nd Street, which was the restaurant on the reality show on NBC entitled The Restaurant, 
with Rocco and restaurateur Jeffrey Chaudero. Personal fun fact. So Simon formerly had a Michelin-starred restaurant called Piora in the West Village with chef Chris Cipollone, who is now at Francie, and he was my guest on episode 283 with John Winterman. And I once dined there at the bar solo, and I just remember being fascinated watching the bartender chisel a large square ice cube into a perfect sphere that he then used in this drink in an rocks glass. So it was very cool. And at Coco Dock, when I was sitting at the bar, I did also observe the bartenders making amazing drinks there. And one of them in a tall glass had this large rectangular ice cube. I'd never seen this ice cube before. So I guess you'd say Simon has an eye for ice cubes. So the cost of my meal was $70.50, not including tax and gratuity. The bucket was $38. The golden nugget was $28. And then the extra thigh was $4.50. So as I said, the golden nugget was a splurge and the bucket is a real value. But um, it was all worth it for me and all delicious. Would I go back? Yes. Website, cocodoc.com and on Instagram at cocodoc and that's C-O-Q. O-D-A-Q. Okay, so we did the final question. We went a little out of order in the show, but c'est la vie. That is the show. Thank you again to Andrew Zimmern for joining me and huge congratulations on your entire career and everything you've accomplished and keep telling your stories. You can find Andrew, as he mentioned, on his website, andrewzimmern.com and on Instagram at Chef AZ. You can find out more about the South Beach Wine and Food Festival on their website, which is sobewff.org, and on Instagram at sobewff and the same hashtag. I'm looking forward to getting down there, warming up, and going to lots of fun, fabulous food events. You can follow me on Instagram at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Check out my new book, Chef Wise, Life Lessons from Leading Chefs Around the World by Fiden. It's now available wherever books are sold. And anyone who's going down to Miami or already in Miami this week, guess what? On this Friday, February 23rd, I'm going back to the Grove, as I like to say. That is Coconut Grove, which is near where I grew up in Miami and still where my parents live. And I'm going to be doing a talk on Chef Wise and signing copies of my book at Books and Books at their Coconut Grove location. And this is again on Friday, February 23rd at 7 p.m. So come join me. The event is free and books will be available for purchase. And I'd be happy to sign your copy. So I'm excited about it. It's very meaningful for me to be doing a book event in Miami. So I hope to see you there. 
Many thanks to my engineer today, Armin. Thanks again to Andrew and to his publicist, Emily Heath, and to South Beach Wine and Food Festival's publicist, Katie Chaplin, for their assistance. And thanks to the entire team of South Beach Wine and Food Festival, including its founder, Lee Schrager, who's been a past guest on this show. And I look forward to seeing him and everyone at the fest. So thank you. I'm your host and producer, Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next week with a new show. I hope you'll tune in then. And thank you as always for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.